0: Well, good morning, Calvary Bible Church family. Open uh, your Bibles to James chapter 2. We're continuing our study of this really marvelous and impactful book of scripture, and we're going to be in James chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, and they've entitled this message, Mercy Triumphs Over Judgment. As you're turning there, I want to begin by asking you a question, and that is this. what, What is the... Thought or the response that uh, you sense in your heart, whenever you see sorrow or suffering in the world, when you see something really terrible happening, when you see sickness or tragedy, heartbreak, suffering, injustice or death, how does your heart respond? You know, I think that one of the responses, and actually one that is common to both believers and unbelievers, is this heart reaction that says, it shouldn't be this way. Don't you find yourself reacting that way? You see something terrible and you're like, it shouldn't be this way. Why is it this way? It shouldn't be this way. And That soul level intuition, again shared by both believers and unbelievers, is absolutely correct. It should not be this way. This is not how it should be. At the beginning and the end of the Bible, God tells us how it's supposed to be. Genesis 1 verse 31, it says, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And then at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 through 5. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the beginning and the end. At the beginning, the Lord says, behold, everything that I've made is very good. And at the end, he says, behold, I am making all things new. And behold, I will dwell with people and I will be their God. And I'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more tears, no more mourning, crying, or pain. I want you to think about that word, behold. It's interesting, the Bible begins and closes with an invitation, in fact, an exhortation from God to behold something, to see it, to think about it, to consider it. Behold that the creation was made very good and behold that the new creation will be very good. Behold that fact. And then compare it to the veil of tears in which we live now and we will realize it shouldn't be this way. Behold the perfection of the original creation. Behold the perfection of the new creation. That is how it's supposed to be. The fallen world is not the way it was created to be, nor is it how it will be. The veil of tears which has descended over this fallen world because of sin is not the way it was, not the way it will be, and is not the way it is supposed to be. So we are right when we see Sorrow and suffering and our hearts cry out, it should not be this way. But now I want to ask you a different question, related but different. What has to happen for the world to be 100% free of all sorrow and suffering? What would it take for it to be the way it's supposed to be? for the world to be 100% free of all sorrow and all suffering? And I would like to suggest to you an answer to that question, and I think it can be answered in a single word, the word is perfection. That's what it would take, perfection. It would take perfection for there to be no sorrow or suffering. For there to be no suffering and no sorrow, the world and everyone in it would have to be perfect for there to be no tears no mourning no crying and no pain the world and all who dwell in it would have to be absolutely totally perfect this is pretty obvious take a perfect world one cruel word and now there are tears in that perfect world One selfish act, and now there is tragedy in that perfect world. One evil deed, and there is now mourning and crying and pain. Therefore, the only way there can be a world free from suffering and sorrow is for there to be a world which is free of sin and therefore free of sinners. Perfection must be the requirement for entrance to a perfect world, or else the perfect world would immediately cease being perfect. This is why Jesus said that the standard for entrance into the kingdom of heaven is perfection. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must be perfect because your heavenly Father is perfect. You must be holy for he is holy. It's why Revelation 21 verse 27 says, in regard to the new creation, that nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination or lying shall ever come in. That's why it's a perfect world, because nothing unclean and no one who practices sin will ever come in to that perfect world. That's what makes it perfect, that's what keeps it perfect. Nothing unclean and no one who does evil will ever come in. If God allowed sin in, that would bring suffering and sorrow back and we would live in the veil of tears we're in now forever. Since just one sin brings suffering and sorrow, just one sin warrants judgment and exclusion from the kingdom of heaven. That's obviously a problem for you and I. But James is going to end our passage this morning by telling us that mercy triumphs over judgment. It was in the mercy of God displayed in the cross and in the resurrection that mercy triumphed over judgment. And we're gonna walk through James's teaching on this subject. In our passage for this morning, James is going to remind us that even one sin is to many to be admitted into the kingdom of heaven on our own merits. He's going to tell us that every sin breaks the highest law and that every sin betrays the highest lawgiver. That's going to be in the first two verses. And then he's going to tell us that those who have received liberty live it and those who have received mercy give it. And then he will conclude by saying that mercy triumphs over judgments let's read the passage together James chapter 2 verses 10 through 13 for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point he has become guilty of all for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder now if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder you have become a transgressor of the law so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The first thing we see in verse 10 is that verse 10 says, keeps the whole law and yet stumbles. In just one point, he has become guilty of all. This is an astounding statement. Every sin breaks the highest law. Now, verse 10 begins with the word for, which Reminds us that James is building on what he had just said in verse 9. Remember in verse 9 he said, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And remember the, the example he had given. You know, two guys come in, one guy's dressed really nice, and so the usher says, hey, here's a good seat for you. Another guy comes in, he's not dressed so nice, so a guy says, hey, why don't you stand in the back or something? And so he shows favoritism to this wealthier guy. And James says that that is not only sin, it's enough to be convicted by the law of God as a transgressor. And every Israeli reader of this letter would have immediately known what that meant. I mean, to be convicted by the law as a transgressor was to face eternal judgment. This is a serious matter. The consequences are severe. And then they look back and they say, no, wait a minute all this guy did was show a little favoritism. You know, he probably wasn't even really thinking that deeply about it. So he just saw some guy come in who looked important, so he gave him an important seat. Saw a guy come in who didn't look important, and he gave him an unimportant seat. He just kind of stumbled into this favoritism. And, you know, favoritism doesn't even kind of make the list of the top 10 sins, right? It's not even in the 10 Commandments, is it? So you're saying that this at least from a human perspective, relatively minor sin, uh, uh, an oversight, uh, uh, something this guy stumbled into is enough not only to be labeled as sin, but to convict him as a transgressor in the eyes of the law. That's astounding. His readers would be saying that after reading verse 9, and so in verse 10, he's going to give an explanation. He says in verse 10, for, or for this reason, or this is why, He's going to explain why even seemingly such a minor thing has such major consequences. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of it all. What James is saying is that God's, Moral law is a complete and a unified whole. Yes, there are individual commandments and principles, but they are all interrelated, all connected in all parts of one divine law. When the scriptures talk about the commandments of God, it uses the Greek term entele. When it talks about the law of God, it uses the term namas. Namas is the whole and entele are the individual parts. The commandments are parts of one whole, one law of God. And the law, is not like a set of glass dishes. You know, if you have a set of glass dishes, you know, and you have like the really you know, like the centerpiece ones, and then you have kind of the you know more common everyday ones. You know, let's say say someone has kind of you know, all their dishes are glass dishes. So they have the expensive china, right, the stuff that comes out on holidays, and then they kind of have their common cups and you know the you know just the the inexpensive kinds. And someone might think, right, if the law was like a set of glass dishes, someone might think, you know, if you took one of the inexpensive cups and you know you were careless and you dropped it and you broke it you know that's a bummer but not a super big deal you didn't break the china the important ones the big ones the expensive ones it was just this little cup you broke one little thing but there's 50 other pieces that remain intact James is saying the law is not like that. The law is not like a set of glass dishes where you can break a small one without breaking the others. Rather, the law is like a a historic stained glass window in a historic cathedral. If you break it at one part, you shatter the whole thing. The law is like a single stained glass window. Yes, it has individual colors and parts, the various commandments and principles But all of the individual colors and parts are part of one beautiful and good thing. So if you break it at just one part, the whole thing shatters and you're guilty of ruining it all. In the same way, every sin violates God's law. Every sin shatters the holy perfection which God intended when he created the world to be very good. You see this, This dividing line between the world of sin and suffering and the world where there is no suffering because there is no sin, the line between those is the law of God. It's a stained glass window. You break it at one part, the whole thing shatters. And so the violator of the law is rightly considered guilty and is subject to judgment. Imagine... You take just a small rock and you throw it through that 1,000-year-old stained glass window and it shatters. Now the rain comes in. Now the cold comes in. Now it's miserable inside for everyone. The consequences of that one evil act are astounding and far-reaching. There's guilt. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all, says James. (laughs) To which the reader's most responsible, James, if, if that be so, then everyone is guilty before God and no one is righteous before God. And I think James would say, yes, that's exactly the point I'm making. In fact, Skip down to chapter three, verse two. In chapter two, verse 10, he says, whoever keeps the law and yet stumbles. So it's, it's almost this, this, you know, you're walking along, you, you, you tripped into the stained glass window and broke it. Well, he's gonna use that same word stumbles again in chapter three, verse two. He's gonna say, we all stumble in many ways. See, one stumbling is enough to break the law but we don't have just one. The reality is we, we all stumble in many ways. This is a direct equivalent from James of what Paul writes in Romans 3.23 when he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. James is saying we all stumble in many ways. It only takes breaking one part of the stained glass window to be guilty of breaking it all. The sad reality is is that we've broken many parts of it. We broke it and it shattered and then we stomped on it on the ground and it's in pieces. We are transgressors, we are guilty. As Paul famously put it in Romans 3, we have already charged, right? This is a, a judicial charge in the heavenly courts We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's no one who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of serpents is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so then what's the verdict? He says in verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. This is the verdict and the law is the proof. The broken shards of glass testify to the guilt of the transgressors. And so he says in verse 20, because of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul says the law is good and beautiful and right, but it lays in pieces at our feet. And so what does it do? It is the proof of our guilt. And no amount of trying to piece the pieces back together and gluing them and promising you'll build a new one and all of that, nothing can undo what you have done. We're transgressors, we're guilty. So is there hope? Well, James is going to say that mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's exactly what Paul says right after he says, there's no one righteous, not even one. The law is going to hold everyone accountable before God. It's going to shut everybody's mouth. No one's going to have any excuses. The evidence is going to be there before them on the day of judgment. And no one will be able to merit or earn their way to heaven by keeping the law. Right after that, he says in Romans 3.21, but now apart from the law, Christ Jesus. Here we are standing in the, with the rain pouring down, the cold and the misery inside this cold stone cathedral which we've built. We've shattered the stained glass windows. It's laying at our feet. We're looking up at this misery and out of heaven comes righteousness. Out of heaven comes mercy. Out of heaven comes grace. Out of heaven comes the solution. So the point James is making back in James chapter two, verse 10 is clear. If we stumble in just one way, we're guilty. But the reality is, as he says in chapter three, verse two, we have all stumbled in many ways. Even if you could claim you kept it all but one, it wouldn't be enough. And yet you can't claim that you've kept it in all but one because we all stumble in many ways. So how can anyone be saved? The answer is it can only be by the mercy of God. Mercy has to triumph over judgment. How can mercy triumph over judgment? And the answer of Scripture is only through the cross of Christ. The question is, for you, have you realized that you are a transgressor? You are a sinner who has violated God's holy law. Have you realized that just one little sin is enough to condemn you? And the reality is that you've sinned many times, many ways, and with much severity. There's absolutely no hope, none, that you could earn heaven on the basis of your own thoughts, words, and deeds. You can't earn your way to heaven any more than if you shattered a historic stained glass window. You could piece it together, glue it together, and have it be restored. You have no righteousness, none. No hope of obtaining it. Nothing that can come from within you can bring you this holiness and this righteousness. You are, you have shattered the perfection. You have brought evil into the world. You have added evil to the world and therefore you should rightly face the consequences. Where there is sin, there is suffering. So what's your hope? Well, the only hope is Christ who took your guilt upon himself. he scooped up the broken pieces and he carried it. He took it on him. And then he rose from the dead in a mighty victory of mercy over judgment, the triumph of grace over sin, a grace which is greater than our sin. God didn't save us by lowering the severity of sin, he saved us by magnifying the glories of grace. So how can you be saved? You must renounce your efforts to glue the pieces together. And you must cast yourself upon the cross of Christ, trusting fully and only in him and in his mercy and grace to save you. The question is, have you done so? Have you run to the cross? If not, I hope the words of James in chapter two, verse 10 will ring in your ears and in your heart until you do. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of it all. Every sin breaks the highest law. Now before we move on to our next point, I want to do a brief excursus and address a common misunderstanding of verse 10. There is a common misunderstanding of verse 10 and it's a misunderstanding which has kind of grown in prominence in the last few decades and especially in the last few years. It's an error which has crept into the thinking and also into the witness and the public statements of many Christians, including many pastors and even authors. It's an error that would take the broad label of false moral equivalence. I wanna address an error called false moral equivalence. Moral equivalence is the view that all sins are exactly the same and no sin is any worse than any other. This is, you know, you hear it commonly say, well, sin is sin. All sin is the same. All sin is the same. Really? Really? All sin is the same. Now, what James just said is all sin, even the smallest, even the less worst, all of it violates perfection, all of it shatters the stained glass, all of it makes you worthy of guilt. That is not the same as saying that all evils are equally evil or have the same severity of both moral consequence and of punishment. I often hear Christians, many of whom should definitely know better, saying things like: Sin is sin. My sin is no different than your sin. Your sin is no different than anyone else's sin. No, no, that's not true. All sin is sin. And any sin is enough to condemn. But it is simply untrue that all sin is morally equivalent. And the scripture is crystal clear about this. A student who cheats on a test and Hitler who gassed 6 million people to death both sinned. Both are guilty before God. But it is absolutely unbiblical and frankly highly illogical to think that there is moral equivalence between cheating on a test and committing genocide against the people of God. Sin is sin. And any sin is enough to condemn. But just as there are different punishments for different crimes in human law, there are also different degrees of punishment for different degrees of evil in divine law. And this is clear from the beginning to the end of scripture. So for example, the scripture says all idolatry is sin. But The Lord used Israel to bring incredible wrath on the Canaanites, why? He said, because they commit a particularly repugnant form of idolatry, they take their infant babies and bake them alive on the arms of Molech, and that is an abomination in my sight, the Lord says, and so he brought swift and severe judgment. Were all the rest of the nations not guilty of idolatry? Sure, they were guilty of idolatry, but this was a particularly heinous form of idolatry. Were there other cities in the ancient world who who committed sin and had all kinds of evils? Yes, but it was Sodom and Gomorrah on whom fire and brimstone reigned. Are the demons all evil? Yes, they're all evil, but it is, according to Jude, a number of them who went after strange flesh, who were thrown into the abyss and outer darkness early. There are particularly heinous sins, sins that Scripture calls abominations that God certainly deals with more severely than other sins. The fact that there are different severities of sins and different punishments is clear. Jesus taught that those who sin in certain ways will be judged with smaller punishments than others. He also said, for, uh, Paul said in, in the book of Romans, he talked about those who are storing up wrath for themselves. The more evil they commit, the more Judgment is accumulating to their account. One sin is enough to establish their destination in hell, but it is the accumulation of sin and moral evils and their severity that increase the judgment there. There are, according to scripture, degrees of punishment in hell. There are degrees of reward in heaven. Heaven will be perfect for all, but yet there are rewards for service. Jesus said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And to the contrary, Don't store up wrath for yourself. Sin is sin, but not all sins are equal in their degree of evil, nor in their degree of consequence. Throughout scripture, as I said, it's clear, all evil brings judgment, but certain evils bring stricter judgment. This is even stated right in the context in James chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Why does a teacher of the word have a stricter judgment than someone who doesn't teach the word? They both commit the same sin. Why is his worse? Why does he have a stricter judgment? Well, it's because the harm caused by a preacher's hypocrisy is greater than the harm caused when someone else commits the same sin. So when James points out in chapter two, verse 10, that any sin is enough to make a person guilty before God, he is not saying that all sins are the same or that all sins have the same consequences. He is not teaching moral equivalence. Sometimes people point to Jesus and say, well, didn't Jesus teach moral equivalence? Didn't he say that you know, if you hate someone in your heart, you've committed murder, and you know, if, you, if you lust, you've committed adultery, right? And by the way, those are the two examples James is gonna use in, in chapter two, murder and adultery. Jesus did teach that those who commit those sins in their hearts, he says that's enough to make you worthy of hellfire. But he didn't teach that hating someone and actually blowing, blowing their head off is morally the same. It's not morally the same. If I hate my neighbor, I've committed murder in my heart. That's enough to condemn me as a lawbreaker before God. But the severity and the consequences of that sin is not the same as if I actually shoot him. In one case, I will be dealt with in one way and in the other, another way. So beloved, please don't make sloppy and unbiblical statements such as all sin is the same before God. It's simply untrue, it's unbiblical, and it misleads people. Most importantly, it misleads people. I think it terribly misleads people because it makes them think that committing abominations is no worse than failing to come to a complete stop at a stop sign. Yes, all sin is sin in the, in the sense of, of breaking the standard of moral perfection, but not all sin has the same seriousness or the same consequences. So James is not teaching moral equivalence. In, in In chapter two, verse ten, he is teaching. He is teaching the standard of the law, which is perfection. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. So every sin breaks the highest law. Secondly, every sin betrays the highest lawgiver. Verse eleven. He who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. James is addressing kind of the common excuse people makes. You know, well, yes, I did this, but I didn't do that. You know, it's like, hey, you know. Uh, The reason they're part of the same law is because they both come from the same lawgiver. The unity of the law comes from its source. In chapter 4, verse 12, he's going to continue this thought when he says, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. The unity of the law comes from its unitary source. There is one lawgiver and judge. Will Varner comments, quote, there is only one lawgiver, which is a point he will later firmly declare in chapter four, verse 12. Therefore, there is one whole and entire law, not just many individual and separate laws unrelated to each other. Since the law is the expression of the will of the one who gave it, the transgression of a single portion of the law is disobedience to that one will, and consequently, a transgression of the whole law, End quote. So James wants us to Remember why sin is so awful. Sin is so awful because of who the crime is against. See, the one who said don't show partiality, the one who said don't murder, the one who said don't commit adultery, the one who said thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself, that royal law that he talked about earlier in chapter two, the same one is the one who gave all those laws. And so when we violate any of them, we violate his will. We betray the highest lawgiver. Now, one of the, I talked about how, you know, there's, there's not moral equivalence between evils. One of the most obvious moral principles regarding severities of evil is that the worst crimes are those per- perpetrated against the pure and the innocent. So, for example, murder is always evil, but if a mafia guy kills another mafia guy, we don't consider it to be exactly the same as if the mafia guy kills a child. Well, what is the difference between a mafia guy killing a mafia guy and a mafia guy killing the child? It is the innocence of the child. It's the moral purity of the child. The more the target or the victim of the crime is morally innocent, the worse the crime is considered. Another obvious moral principle is that guilt increases when crime is committed against a moral authority. And the higher the moral authority, the worse the crime. So, for example, if you walk up on a stage and you slap a comedian, A comedian that's one level of evil, but if you walk up to a judge and slap him, that's another level of evil. It is the moral authority of the target that determines the severity of the crime. A third obvious moral principle is that guilt increases with the consequences of the crime, the harm caused by the crime. So for example, drunkenness is always bad. It's wrong to get drunk, at home alone where you can't hurt anyone. But that doesn't create the same harm as if you then get in your car, drive through a red light, and kill a family with three kids. Guilt increases in proportion to the harm caused by your action. That's why in that case, there, if you kill four people, there's four counts of manslaughter against you. If you kill one, there's one count of manslaughter against you. I want you to consider those three obvious and universally held moral principles in light of what James says in verse 11, that every sin is a sin against God. As David says, against you and you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and you are blameless when you judge. David is saying the reason that God is just in his judgment, blameless in his judgment of the sinner is because of who the sin is against. Again, let me recount the moral principles and apply them to God. Since a sin against a morally pure being increases guilt, sin against God, who is perfectly morally holy, increases guilt infinitely. And since guilt, secondly, increases when sin is committed against a higher moral authority, sin against God brings infinite guilt because he is the highest moral authority. If it increases your guilt to slap a judge, increases your guilt more to, to slap the Supreme Court justice, then at what level does it raise your guilt when you slap the face of God, the judge of all judges? Third, since guilt increases with the harm caused by an action, sin against God brings infinite guilt, for it robs him of glory and plunges the world into suffering and sorrow. The consequences of sin against God are immense. And so, when we understand that every sin betrays the highest lawgiver, we will understand the sinfulness of sin. It is a crime against the most holy. It is a crime against the highest lawgiver. It is a crime with infinite, eternal consequences, because the same one who said, don't show partiality, said, love your neighbor as yourself, said, don't murder, don't commit adultery, you betray him when you sin. So in verses 10 through 11, James has taught us that every sin breaks the highest law and every sin betrays the highest lawgiver. Well, what is the conclusion then? The conclusion begins in verse 12. Those who have received liberty must live it. He says in verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. You need to speak and act in ways that correspond to your profession of faith. These are two commands, speak and act, and they're in the present tense. So regularly, habitually speak and act in a way which conforms to your belief that you will give an account to the Holy One. James says we should live as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. This is an interesting phrase, law of liberty. Back in verse eight, he called the law the royal law, speaking of its source. It comes from the king of all kings. Now he's gonna talk about its effect. It's the law which produces liberty. This is, this is a, 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 a statement of the source or the, or the destination of it. Royal law is its source and liberty is its effect. God's commandments are the edicts of a king. It's a royal law. They come from him. Therefore, they carry his absolute authority. But obeying God's commandments brings liberty. It is the law which produces liberty. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 6 when he says, you used to be slaves of sin. Now you've been set free in order to obey God. And Jesus said, when the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This law is not here to bind you, this law is here to free you, to free you from your slavery to sin, to free you from the veil of tears, to free you from the sorrows that come from evils. God's law is good and holy and right and just, it sets you free, it is the law of liberty, so obey it and you will be truly free. Those who have been set free live in accordance with that freedom, those who have received liberty live it. Secondly, those who have received mercy, give it. Those who have received mercy, give it. He says, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Show mercy will be judged mercilessly by God. This is a corollary of what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Throughout the book of James, he often alludes to the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, what did Jesus say? He said, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. James is saying, here's the corollary to that. If you don't show mercy, you won't receive mercy. You'll be judged mercilessly. This is, Jesus goes on in the Sermon on the Mount chapter 6 to say, if you don't forgive others, your Father in heaven won't forgive you. You don't show mercy, it's a demonstration that you haven't received it. Then in Matthew 18, Jesus gave a powerful parable to drive home the point that those who have received mercy from God must also show mercy to others. Those who have received mercy from God must also show mercy to others. Remember the parable of the ungrateful debtor. This guy gets forgiven of this huge debt and then he goes out and finds somebody who owes him a couple bucks and he beats him up and demands he give him back his money. And Jesus says, how can that be? He was forgiven so much, how can he not forgive so little? Those who don't show mercy are those who haven't and won't. Receive it. But blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Mercy, the showing of mercy, is one of the key barometers of your spiritual status. If you are merciless, that is because you don't know the Lord's mercy. Showing mercy is a key fruit by which we can know if we're truly saved. You can't give what you haven't received. If you're unmerciful, it's because you're unsaved. Someone who doesn't give mercy to others shows they have not received mercy from God. Judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Well, then at the end of verse 13, James concludes with good news. In fact, I believe this phrase is a summary of the good news of the gospel. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The cross has triumphed. The empty grave through his resurrection, Christ has triumphed. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. His grace is greater than our sin. Paul says, even though I was the worst of sinners, by the way, no moral equivalence with Paul. He looks back at his former life and he says, I was the worst of sinners. He doesn't say, ah, sin is sin, you know, you know, going house to house and, you know, killing those people and having Stephen stoned to death and, you know, throwing women and children into those dungeons. Like that's like totally morally equivalent to like how that lady in church, you know, that one time where she like, you know, said something mean to someone. You know, no, 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 no moral equivalence with Paul. He says, I was the worst of sinners. He talks to people. He says, stop storing up wrath for yourself. He says, I was the worst of sinners, but for that reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, God might display his unlimited patience. He might display his mercy and grace in me so that I would be an example to all who would believe. Because we look at Saul and we say, if God can save him, he can save me. If God can save the worst of sinners, he can save me. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, his grace is greater than our sins. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is a reference to the gospel, but I would also like to suggest to you That this is a phrase which should shatter all of our internal justifications for the critical spirit that so often infects our hearts. When we are inclined to be judgmental, critical, and unmerciful towards others, we should remember that we are choosing weakness, not strength. Because it's mercy which triumphs over judgment, not vice versa. We hold on to grudges and offenses typically because angry bitterness makes us feel powerful and we, we feel like we would be giving up power to, an, to, to some person, to some evil person if we were to extend mercy to them. But it is mercy which triumphs. It is mercy which is strength. It is mercy which overcomes. Unforgiveness is actually a manifestation of weakness because judgment is weaker than mercy. So don't hold on to anger and bitterness. That leads to weakness and defeat. Instead, show mercy. In showing mercy, you triumph. That is only because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Only because of that can mercy triumph over judgment. If you've received mercy, give mercy. We're going to come now to the Lord's table. And as the men come to serve us, I want to ask you to spend some time reflecting Has mercy triumphed over judgment in your heart? Have you received the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Have you stopped trying to piece together the broken fragments, the shattered fragments of the law that you haven't kept and can't keep? And have you thrown yourself at the mercy of the cross? Has mercy triumphed over judgment in your heart? And then secondly, have you then begun extending that mercy towards others by sharing the good news with them and by treating them with love and kindness? Let's have a time of reflection.